0: Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're beginning at verse 32. We're going to read through chapter 5, verse 11 for this next section of the story of the early church. Listen to the Word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So reads the word of God. This passage begins with such power and grace and finishes with such fear and concern. In his commentary on the opening portion of this passage today, John Calvin wrote these words. He said, We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. And I think we would say, Amen, on the heels of that prayer meeting in which the place that they gathered was shaken, reading about their experience of love for one another one heart, one soul together what's mine is yours to help in whatever way you need it that kind of community is amazing and surely it is true we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we're not moved by the reading of that narrative but as beautiful and compelling as the opening section is the the closing section the closing section is just as stunningly ugly And hard to explain. Luke begins acknowledging that great grace was upon them all. Do you see that there? Verse 33 of chapter 4. There's a description of the community. Great grace was upon them all. And then he finishes twice saying that great fear came upon all. Chapter 5, verse 5. And then again in verse 11. This wasn't necessarily a bad fear. It was fear of the Lord, to be sure. But it's fuller than that. In the experience, in what was seen, it was a, a fuller experience than that. The scenario in which it arose, this fear, fear of the Lord, included more than just that. It was a frightening circumstance. Imagine being present and seeing the man drop dead and then... Three hours later, his wife, the same. And it happened at a joyful time. Setting that as the backdrop, as the context. A joyful time that just turned on a dime into something vastly different. I will always remember my first Thanksgiving in ministry. It was 1987. Don't calculate the years uh, that it's been since then. It was Thanksgiving, 1987. I was 26 years old, and I had always loved that time of year, Thanksgiving. In recent years, it had become and remains, obviously, the anniversary of Gene's and my engagement. We were engaged on the eve of Thanksgiving, way back in 1982, I think. Um, but that year we were expecting our first child and I was 6 months into my ministry assignment the first expression of vocational calling in my life. But at about 9:30 that morning the phone rang sudden reversal. It was one of our elders at the church where I was serving. I was the only pastoral staff member in town whose phone number he had handy. He had just come home from the store to find his wife lifeless in the bedroom. She had died of a massive heart attack in the few minutes that he had been away that morning. So I spent the rest of the morning and early afternoon alone with him until his family arrived. It was painful. It was bewildering. What do I have to say to this man, more than twice my age, whose marriage was older than my life? But the Lord was with us that day. It's a sudden reversal. But even in the pain and hardship and ugliness of that moment, we were aware of his presence and his power. That kind of sudden shift is what we're seeing in this passage this morning. Great grace was upon them all. Joy in their relationship with one another. And then suddenly, death. This passage comes in three parts. You can see them there in your bulletin. First is the description of the uniquely selfless love for one another that characterized this new covenant community here. That's the finish of chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. And that's followed, secondly, before the chapter even ends, with a positive example of this love in the life of one particular man. That's, that's Barnabas. And this is the way Luke does it, and we'll see it happen over and over again. little vignette that introduces somebody that, as the story progresses, ends up playing a big role. And here's the first one we see with the appearance of Barnabas. At the end of uh, chapter 4, as a positive example of this love relationship that was going on in this body. And then it finishes with what we'll say as a dual example from one household where this love was notably absent. That's verses 1 through 11, chapter 5. But in all of it, there is the presence of God uniting, enabling, even protecting his people. Through the ministry of His Spirit. That is present throughout. As we were talking about this in our preaching team this week, we we were struck by the fact that what the the people prayed for at the end of last week's passage there in verses 30 and 31 of Acts chapter 4, they're, they're, they're asking in that prayer for God to keep doing what He's doing and for them to be strengthened with boldness. And they are strengthened with boldness and we can see that in this text and then the great works that God is doing continue on picking up in verse 12 of chapter 5. And so we've got this story of the life of the church experiencing the answer to their prayers in real time tucked in between their boldness being granted as is recorded in verse 31 and the the, the, the signs and wonders that God is doing in and through them, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5. So this vignette is stuck in the middle. And we get a taste of life in the local church at that time. And so let's walk through this story in these three steps that are listed there for you in your bulletin and see something of their experience and understand something and perhaps learn something from the great reversal that happened as chapter 5 opened. So first, the uniquely selfless love of this new church. Life in the church. This is what it's supposed to look like. Not, Not long before the events that we're reading about right here, just a matter of weeks before, Jesus had said to His disciples in the upper room on the night that He was betrayed, these words. John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are My disciples, if you have love for one another. It's your love for one another that's going to make you convincingly my people. It's going to show people that you are my people. Now in today's passage, we see what that looks like. Verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They loved and treasured The same things, the kingdom of God, the person of God, the work of the spirit, the word of God, the message of the gospel that they were charged to proclaim. Their hearts pulsed together in those loves. The first commandment was being realized among them. They were loving the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. They were loving everything about Him, everything about His work. And they were basking in the glow of His glory, unified with one another in this calling. Verse 32 continues, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had everything in common. This new church community loved one another so much that they voluntarily offered up whatever they had to assist anyone who was in need. We talked about that before, but what a picture that is of what Jesus has done for us. Giving up who He is for us. Now, let's understand what that means. That doesn't mean that He became any less God. It doesn't mean that he was any less of a man or even a different kind of man, except that he was unfallen. But Jesus laid down his life for us. He took on human flesh that he might become a suitable sacrifice for our sins in addition to being a sufficient one as fully God. And now we see that sort of love and devotion reflected in this community of believers where everything I have is available to you for your need. While the apostles were giving their testimony, the text goes on to read, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ with great power, verse 33, the owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds and laid it at the feet of the apostles. They laid it there at their feet To address those needs as they arose. Anyone that anyone had. This reminds me of Deuteronomy 14 and 15. Do you think about that? We just studied that uh, before COVID began. Do you remember that we actually had a season together before COVID began? Do you remember those days? Reminds me of that text where Moses told Israel that if they honor the law as it addresses giving, and he addressed that at the end of Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 15 then opens saying in verse 4 that there will be no poor among you. If you will honor the giving requirements of the Old Testament law, Moses said there will be no poor among you. But then just a few verses later in verse 11, he says to these same people, there will never cease to be poor in the land. How does that work? There will be no poor among you. There will never cease to be poor in the land? Is Moses contradicting himself in the space of eight verses there? I don't think so. The clear implication is that this practice of giving and caring for the poor will never cease in the community of believers. It will always be there. But as you recognize that the relationship of unique love which characterizes the community of God's people touches them to the point where they give like these people give, those needs will always be met. The needs will always be there and the people of God will always have it upon their heart to be giving in this way so that those needs are met. In effect, then you have no poor among you even though the poor will always be with you. It's not a problem that you're going to solve and move on. It's a problem you're constantly going to be addressing as the people of God. This exercise will never cease. But as you recognize that the relationship of unique love which characterizes the community of God's people is both developed and displayed then by a heart of generous giving, Trusting the Lord together to be their provider and then seeing Him provide through one another through this shared experience of the church that just deepens their love for one another and their devotion to God who continually meets their need. The needs of all will be addressed to the praise of God's glory. That's what was happening in this young Jerusalem church. That's the amazing picture, the uniquely selfless love of the new church that was being enabled by indeed was a a testimony to the presence of the Spirit of God with them. And as a result of that then, the context is set for us to meet for the first time a man who will become a prominent figure in this community even as it moves beyond the confines of Jerusalem. That man is Barnabas. We read here in verse 36 that he is a Levite from Cyprus whose name was actually Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas because he was such an encourager of the body. Do you know people like that? who You just need to call them something else because of the blessing that they are. You, just, you have a nickname for them. Barnabas had a nickname. He had a nickname because he was an encourager. He had a nickname because he loved people. And somehow Joseph didn't fit anymore. Barnabas had to be his name. Now, this kind of statement here usually means, though, that the name chosen for the person either is or resembles the word that is cited. So somehow Barnabas is supposed to mean encourager, and Bar does mean son of a son of. So his name begins correctly, but no one has ever been able to draw a clear connection between the word nabas, the rest of Barnabas, and this word for encouragement here, parapletas. It, it What's the connection? I'm not sure. But somehow, Barnabas meant encourager. And they called him that because that was truer of him than his actual name had been. The nickname fits. Barnabas was one of those who, verse 37, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He put it at their disposal to use as the appropriate need arose and they trusted the church to do that. Truly a remarkable practice. Each one was saying to all of the rest in the body that your need is as important to me as mine. Let that sink in. Do you know anyone whose need is as important to you as your own? There are some people, right? But I guarantee you, if there's a name or face that comes to mind, it is so likely that that's a person in your immediate family who's having a season of pronounced need or who is dependent on you in some way, where your need, their need, is as important to you as your own, and you'll sacrifice anything to meet that need. But that's a pretty unusual need, isn't it? Any need that might have caused you to need outside help is something that is important enough to a brother or sister in Christ that they will actually meet you in that need. That's the kind of relationship it's being talked about here. And think about this as well. Think about a need that might have caused you to sell a piece of property if you had it to meet that need. That's a pretty sizable need, wouldn't you, think, wouldn't you say? If you're going to get to the place where you're going to sell property because of a season of need and you're going to need that to get through this time, that's no small matter. But that's the kind of need that was being met by brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. You have a need? I've got a piece of property over here. That pretty much matches your need. Let me sell that and the proceeds of that can go to you to cover this issue that you have. Wow. I'll sell my property to help you meet your need if you have no other means of meeting it. This isn't common ownership, by the way, folks. Some people try to talk about this as some form of Christian communism or socialism. It's not that at all. It's an entirely voluntary process. And the way that the passage is worded is, as the need arose, we'd look around and and find a way to meet that need. It It wasn't that everything was cashed out and put into a common coffer and everybody just drew from that to live on. Everybody's still living in their own homes. They gathered in one another's homes. We read that in the text. So, this is just something that they would do as the need arose in the body. They'd respond to it in real time. This wasn't an an organizational or administrative nightmare that was going on here. This was just active love. You have a need? I got a solution. Praise God. He's supplying through us and He's knitting us together in community. Remember what Scripture says? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you invest in the needs of one another, your heart engages. Be wonderful to think that our money follows our heart, but that's just not the way it works according to Jesus. Our heart follows our money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Invest in one another there is nothing that deepens the love of the body of Christ more than that. Well, this is the love people in the church have for one another. Notice, I didn't say this is the love that people in the church had for one another, as though this is the first century and that's it. This is the sort of love that people in the church have. Present tense. For one another. This is spirit enabled love. The absence of this kind of love. Essentially means the absence of the spirit. On some important levels. In the experience of a body of believers. But when the spirit of God is present. This kind of love starts showing itself. In the relationships of the body. This is the love that's uniquely enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural work. It, it can't, you can't pretend to have this kind of love. You hear where I'm going? You can't pretend to have this kind of love. We're going to meet a couple people in just a moment who tried. You don't pretend to have this kind of love. This is a supernatural love that's born of the Holy Spirit. A supernatural work that we receive when we trust Christ as Savior. It's part of the transformation that happens within us when we are reconciled to God by faith. In Christ and we're seeing it exhibited here among us these days as well I believe I've commended this body again and again for those qualities we we are sacrificing to meet one another in our need these days in a way that's it's beautiful but we can't take credit for that that's just the spirit of God doing among the people of God what he's supposed to do but what an amazing thing it is to watch And to be a part of. Amen? Amen. It's really attractive. That moves us into chapter 5. It's a really attractive love. Many people would love to appear to have this sort of love. Even when they don't. And there's nothing more miserable than a person in the body of Christ where this kind of love is being displayed and they don't have it, but they're trying to conjure it up within their own hearts. Nothing is going to be more miserable than that. So many people would love to have this sort of love when they don't. And two of those people lived right here in Jerusalem at this time. And this is where this, the, the, the story suddenly turns ugly, perhaps. But there is something in this story. There is something in it to respect and appreciate. You might find yourself there even as you read it. It's like, that is stunning. If you put yourself in the place of being one of those who was standing by, watching this scene develop, it, it's overwhelming, it's dizzying. But then there's also something in there which seems right and respectful. But what in the world is that? Something you might even be thankful for. Let's walk through the story and see if we find it. Chapter 5 begins, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we could read this again. We read it just a moment ago. We could discover from this conversation as we progress through it that the problem here wasn't that this couple kept some of the proceeds for themselves. That wasn't the problem. They were free to do that. In fact, they were free not to sell their property at all. There was nothing incumbent upon them. This is one of the ways we know that this wasn't some sort of a governmental system, but a voluntary act spontaneously generated among this body of believers through the ministry of the Spirit. Peter says to them, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to give all of the money. You didn't even have to sell the property to give any of the money. They were all free to do that if they chose. By the way, isn't that the cutest little squeak you've ever heard? (laughs) That's my grandson. (laughs) He gets into the message. (laughs) The problem here was that they laid their money at the apostles' feet as though it were the whole amount. When it wasn't. That's what happened. They lied to the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 3 says. They tested the Spirit of the Lord. That's how it's put in verse 9. In round 2 of the judgment of God fallen. They tested the Spirit of the Lord, hoping, as one commentator said, to get away with their deception. This couple wanted to appear to be loving and generous and compassionate, without it costing so much. Such an action makes it clear where your affections lie. It makes it clear what your highest priority is. It makes it clear who it is that you actually love in this whole transaction. It changes. That slight action of withholding some and pretending that it's all changes entirely what's taking place here into something utterly unlike what was actually happening. This isn't imitating the love that was present in the body and, and finding a near miss. This is a reversal into something that is unrecognizable from the place of that love. What is this? There's not even a word for it. The text calls it theft. The text calls it stealing. But that barely captures this because it still doesn't get apart the motive behind it. Plus, what does it say about the concept of the God that you're serving if you think he wouldn't be aware of this deception? We rarely talk about Ananias and Sapphira's concept of God while we talk about the sin that they engaged in. But that's got to be foundational. It's not just a violation of the couple of the commandments on the second tablet, it's a violation of the first commandment. A number of commentators have recognized how this sin is similar to that of Achan. When Israel was just beginning to take possession of the land, just beginning to be established in the land as the old covenant people of God. Their identity being established. There in Joshua chapter 7, we read that Achan took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Another commentator said, In both stories, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. But another wrote, there is something else going on here as well. Something half hidden. Because we don't see it as clearly in English. When Luke says here that Ananias kept back for himself the proceeds, some of the proceeds, verse 2, the verb that he used there is the same one that's used in the Greek translation of of Joshua 7, verse 1, talking about Achan's sin. The same word. And in its only other usage in the New Testament, Titus chapter 2 verse 10, it's, transferred as, or it's translated as pilfering, stealing. So the way that Ananias and Sapphira went about their lying, because that's the clear one that we do see. You haven't lied to men, but to God. The way that Ananias and Sapphira went about their lying also made them guilty of stealing. And the Spirit of God held them accountable. He required their lives immediately, right there and then. He required their lives like He did for Adam and Eve, spiritually, when they ate the fruit in the newly planted garden. He required their lives like He did for Nadab and Abihu, physically, right on the spot. Just like here in Leviticus chapter 10 when they offered unauthorized fire in the newly erected tabernacle. Verse 11 then summarizes and it was then that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard about these things. That fear was the fear of judgment, surely. But it was the fear of God saying, wait a minute, God is present among us. So when we read, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things, we can surely understand why this is stunning. And even if it was, Exclusively that healthy, reverent fear of the Lord that these people felt. And surely it was to some, but surely it wasn't to others. It would have been like what happened after Jesus described His body as true food and His blood as true drink in John chapter 6. Do you remember that extended dialogue with the religious leaders? And it got to such a gruesome point that that's what Jesus was talking my, my body is true food. My blood is true drink. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And it was stunning. And John recorded that many of his disciples turned back at this point and no longer walked with him. It was shocking. It was fearful. What they had just heard. Something Similar likely happened right here. So the question is, how can we say that there's something to respect and appreciate here? How can we say that there's something perhaps even to be thankful for here? Hard as this scene was, it is a reminder of something that we can never forget. Something we cannot afford to forget. Something that we cannot let one another forget. And in that, we can be thankful for this scene. The thing that we can never forget is that we are accountable for our sin. We are accountable for our sin. Either it's going to be paid for by the shed blood of Christ, or we're going to bear the penalty of it ourselves. We are accountable for our sin. And God's judgment is the payout against that. The only reason God's judgment does not fall on us because of our sin is not because God is unjust and doesn't punish our sin. It's because His judgment fell on Jesus. Praise God. Amen? We cannot afford to forget that we are a sinful people. Capable at any moment of going the very direction that Ananias and Sapphira went. And God's judgment awaits us in our sin. We can be shocked at what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Some commentators even suggest an apparent injustice here because they had no opportunity to repent but my friends they did they had opportunity at every step along the way as they were concocting this plan and then questions were posed to them by peter here in the story they could have done it then but they didn't they lied and they doubled down on their lie when they were asked about it and they stole And then they paid the penalty for their sin before a holy God. And we see that illustrated here. This isn't anything new to those who understand who God is and how He works. This isn't new to anyone who understands God's self-revelation in the Scriptures and in the person of Christ. Jesus came because of this problem. Our sin. And He's the only solution to it. I believe the great fear that came upon all who heard it was probably most immediately a fear of judgment, which is part and parcel of our fear of God. The God who blesses with a salvation beyond our imaginings is actually saving us from something. He's saving us from the outpouring of His wrath against sin. And how great is a God who provides saving grace to those who believe and does not leave us under His judgment. But what an amazing picture it here is here when we see it played out. And what a right sort of fear it strikes in our hearts. A genuine fear of God that, yes, is definable as that healthy, awful. Worship of God. Awful, awe-filled worship of God. But all friends, it's more than that. It is a genuine, deep, trembling fear of the justice and judgment of God. Equally a manifestation of His holy and righteous character. There was great joy and generosity happening in this early church, so much so that it might have seemed to them as though heaven itself had already arrived. That's what Calvin was talking about. If you read this and don't have that same feeling, how can it get better than this? You probably have a hard heart. The answer is, it can get so immeasurably better than this that we can lose touch with the fact that that's possible. We can so enjoy the fellowship in the body of Christ that we can forget that this is just the preamble in a sinfully torn and broken world. We can forget that there's a new world coming free of all of that. They were experiencing it right here, right now, in this fellowship. The Spirit had been given, joyful obedience was being expressed, and generosity of a stunning sort was common fare. But then came the startling reversal. The stunning reminder that there are still sinners in this world and each one in the community was still numbered among those sinners vulnerable in the same way their brother and sister were this message they were given to carry really did need to go out to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth because it's the solution for sin it really need did need to spread The solution to sin needed to be proclaimed and the consequences of sin had just been illustrated before their very eyes. Quite possible the first reduction in the size of this body. Every other report is that its expansion. Well, here in chapter 5, we have its first reduction. And was it only those two? I don't know. Like we said with Jesus. Some who might have been on the periphery of this body and saw that manifestation with Ananias and Sapphira, do you not think they said, wow, that's not for me? Because surely people are still saying that to this very day. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? Three things come to mind. We could distill many. We could talk long about the implications of this text for us. let me give you three quickly that come to mind what this means for us today number one the very same God has the very same disposition towards sin in our day as he did in theirs that has got to be a takeaway the very same God has the very same disposition towards sin in our day as in theirs And even if He withholds immediate dispensation of His justice, it will be no less severe when He pours it out than it was on this day for Ananias and Sapphira. As a matter of fact, as we read about the outpouring of God's judgment at the end of the story in the book of Revelation, we can see that it comes with many more facets and layers to it than we see In this story. But what a picture of what stands at the heart of God's judgment. He has the same disposition towards sin today. As he always has. And if we are not in Christ. We are under the judgment. That Ananias and Sapphira experienced. And that the early church witnessed. To the initiation of their great fear. Second. Second. The joy of Holy Spirit unified community is just as sweet in our day as it was in theirs. It's not just that the justice and judgment remains present, but even the sweetness of fellowship remains present. The joy of Holy Spirit unified community is just as sweet in our day as it was in theirs. And it shows itself in some Remarkable ways as you continue on reading in your New Testament and about the experience of this early church in the letters that were written to a number of them. The joy of that community strengthens us, each and all. It strengthens us not only to walk with Jesus ourselves in joyful celebration of the presence of the Spirit among us, But it also strengthens us to say no to sin. That's how the fellowship of the local body actually works. It's not just that we can give up our money to meet one another's need as an expression of our love for one another. Our expression of love goes deeper than that. You could say, What in the world? What expression? of love goes deeper than the giving of money toward the meeting of a need. It shows itself, I think, even more deeply when we give up our sin in order not to fall out of fellowship with the body of Christ. This love relationship with this Holy Spirit indwelt community is the very context in which church discipline happens. That's why church discipline works. It's not some expression of cruelty. Painting an A on the Jersey of everybody who who, who falls. It's actually recognizing that the love relationship that develops within the body of Christ is so sweet that I would rather say no to my stubborn sin than to lose out on this fellowship. That's the impact. The joy of Holy Spirit unified community is just as sweet as in our day as in theirs. And it's sweet to the level of saying, This is what gratifies me, not this. What an amazing picture that is. And we could trace that out in the rest of the story, but that's an important part to factor in here. That's the community that was robbed of this brother and sister that day. Third, the awareness of this story helps us take better care of our struggling brothers and sisters. There's a point I would like to be on our radar as we finish this text today. The awareness of this story here in Acts 4 and 5 helps us take better care of our struggling brothers and sisters. It reminds us that sin can sneak into this new covenant community anywhere through any one of us. And so we take good care of one another. Because when it does sneak in, the consequences of sin are real. We might not have the opportunity any longer to watch people drop dead in the presence of others because of their sin, but that almost makes it harder. Because we can lose touch with the implications and the outcome of our sin. We fear God and we long for one another's repentance lest we fall under God's judgment. And we don't just walk through life trembling with fear, wondering if if the Almighty is going to strike. We walk through life confident that in the person of Christ, our sins have been covered, and in the presence of His Spirit, our unity and collective strength is enhanced. We live in that joy, but we live continually reminded of the fact That sin comes in through side doors, through the ductwork, through the interests and aspirations and affections that we all feel that draw us away from this fellowship. We fear God and we long for one another's repentance lest we fall under judgment. The writer of Hebrews said it so well. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another. Every day. As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What a great calling to the church in the spirit of Acts 4 and 5. And Bonhoeffer wrote in his wonderful little book, Life Together, we admonish one another to go the way Christ bids us to go. We warn one another against the disobedience that is our undoing. We are gentle and we are firm with one another for we know both God's kindness and God's firmness. Why should we be afraid of one another since both of us have only God to fear? He's capturing this image. We know both the kindness and the severity of God and we represent that to one another. And it is the most loving expression we can make To call a brother back from sin. Think of James 5. We pursue one another when we stray. And that's part of our love for one another. So this is our takeaway today. This is our takeaway. These three thoughts. The community they enjoyed is ours to enjoy as well. The sin that entered into their community can very well enter into ours also. So we take good care of one another. Not as spiritual watchdogs. But as pilgrims on the way together. Helping one another to arrive at our desired destination. Where we will finally be free of all appetite for deception and deceit forever we help one another arrive i think that's a good takeaway from seeing the experience of this early church my friends in just a few moments we're going to celebrate communion together We're going to remember the body and blood of the Lord that has reconciled us to God Himself and who has placed us into this body. We have heard again this morning that apart from that sacrifice, we are under sin and judgment in the very same way that Ananias and Sapphira experienced. What a joy, what a blessing. To remember the body and blood of the Lord. It's a reminder not only that each of us. Is reconciled to God by faith in Christ. And therefore I would urge. Only those of you who have trusted Christ as Savior. To participate. But It's also a reminder that we have been. United into one body. And that collectively together. We are acknowledging communion. We are communing together with God and with one another through the work of Christ. We're remembering that we are the body of Christ. That we receive His flesh and His blood as payment for our sin. And as reconciliation to God in Him. I'm going to pray, then we're going to hear some music for just a few moments. That will give you opportunity to go to a common area, whether the lobby here or uh, outside of the gym into the building um, or out in the hallway in the educational wing to get communion supplies and then come back to your seat and then we will participate in this act of remembrance together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, do this work in us and among us, I pray. Help us to hear and resonate with all that's going on here in this text. The joyful, unified, unselfish fellowship that these believers were experiencing. And in the midst of that, the reminder of the severity of your judgment against sin and our need to be in Christ. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who hasn't trusted Christ as Savior, I pray that even now you would move in their hearts by the ministry of your Spirit, calling them to saving faith and belief, cleansing them from their sin. And I pray, Father, that such a person would feel very free to participate with us in this act of remembrance. But for those, Father, who for any reason are holding out, I pray that you would give them judgment sufficient to let these elements pass. That they might not eat and drink judgment to themselves. In Jesus' name we pray.